Hey Grace, I want to just again wish you a happy Memorial Day. You know, this weekend's about a lot more than cookouts and a kickoff to summer, but it's about a time where we honor and remember those who gave their lives in service of our country. And so we want to we remember them, we want to thank them, and want to remember those of you who have lost loved ones, who have friends or family who, who gave their lives in service of our country. And you know, when we think about this, it's really a most Christian ideal to lay down one's life for another. And so we remember and thank these women and men this weekend. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for uh, the time this morning that we can spend singing and praying and praising. And, you know, we think it's like a father who gives their child money and the child then buys them a gift for Christmas. It's just like you, Father, giving us the very breath in our lungs that we then use to sing your praises. We thank you for the sacrifice of these women and men. And uh, thank you for that that remind us of our Lord Jesus Christ, who laid down his life for his enemies, for us, that we might be brought to you. As we're reminded of war and death this weekend too, we're reminded that this world is not our home. So we, like these people from Hebrews 11, long for our true home, that we realize we are nothing more than passerbys or strangers and exiles who desire a heavenly country. We long for home. Lord, give us the grace to live by faith here and now. And should you delay your return, give us the grace to die by faith. So as we come to your word this morning, may your spirit write these eternal truths upon our hearts. May we come to a deeper and a greater rejoicing in Jesus Christ. And may we walk by faith, the very faith that you gift to us. And may we glorify you. So we ask you to do these things in our hearts this morning. And I recognize that what you've called me to do, I'm wholly incapable of, of preaching your word. And so I preach by faith, that, Father, that your spirit will use your word to bring your people to Christ to bring praise and glory to your name. And I ask that you do this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I invite you to turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. We're in a series called By Faith, where we're looking at some of these figures from Hebrews 11 and how they demonstrate to us a faith in a most faithful God. Now, Joseph's one of my favorite characters in the whole Bible. Joseph's a guy who, um, in many ways, prefigures and foreshadows and points toward Christ like few others in the Old Testament do. Joseph, there's a lot about his story that we could talk about. Many of you are probably familiar with him. And if you're not, I'm really glad you're listening. Joseph, in the book of Genesis, he's one of the main characters. You have Adam and then Noah, then Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the patriarchs. And then you have Joseph. And what's crazy is that Joseph actually gets as much attention as any of those guys in the book of Genesis. So it's worth paying attention to. Now, there's a lot about the life of Joseph that we could talk about. And I already talk too fast when I'm up here. So we're not even going to try to cover everything from his life. But I do want to give you just a brief overview so that we're, we're all on the same page talking about this guy, Joseph. His story shows up in Genesis chapters 37 through 50. I invite you to read those. It's, it's an amazing story, an amazing account. Joseph was one of the youngest sons of a man named Jacob, who had 12 sons, and um, Jacob's name was changed to Israel, so 12 sons of Israel. Jacob, however, was his father's favorite. Now, parents, playing favorites with your kids is never going to turn out well for your family, and it didn't for Israel's family. Joseph was the favorite son of his father, and his brothers hated him for it. So one day, Joseph goes out to the fields to see how his brothers are doing, and they say, we're going to kill him. And then they decide, oh, we're actually just going to sell him into slavery instead. And they lie to their father and say, Joseph's dead. Joseph's taken to a faraway country of Egypt. 
And he's enslaved in the house of Potiphar, who's the captain of Pharaoh's guard. And Joseph is very successful and winds up being appointed over all Potiphar's household, entrusted with all of his household, except for his wife. But Potiphar's wife wants to sleep with Joseph. And Joseph says, no, but she frames him and lies and says, he tried to force himself onto me. And so Potiphar is enraged and that Joseph, a foreign slave, is thrown into prison for a crime he did not commit. And then he's forgotten about. Not by God, but by others around him. He's in prison, and he's entrusted with more and more authority in the prison, but nonetheless, he's still, um, he's still in jail until Pharaoh has a dream. Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, he has a dream, and he's worried about it. And all of his wise men, none of them can tell him what it means. And so one of the guys remembers, oh, wait a second. In prison back there, there's a guy who can interpret dreams. Let's go get him. So they bring Joseph. He says, God will give an interpretation of your dream, Pharaoh. And God gives the interpretation to Joseph, and Joseph says, here's what your dream means. There's going to be seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of famine. So what we should do, Pharaoh, is prepare during the years of plenty for the years of famine. Pharaoh says, that's a great idea. And he appoints Joseph second in command over all Egypt. This has been 13 years. It's a long time for Joseph to be away from his home, away from his family, enslaved in a foreign land, falsely accused of a crime he didn't commit, and thrown in prison. But 13 years later, he is then appointed second in command, the second most powerful person in the most powerful nation on earth. And the famine comes after the years of plenty. Joseph's brothers come to Egypt wanting food. And Joseph recognizes them. His brothers don't. So Joseph devises a series of tests to see, have my brothers changed from what they did to me all those years ago? And he comes to conclude, yes, they have, especially Judah. And so Joseph makes himself known to his brothers. He says, I'm Joseph. And he forgives them and reconciles with them. And then their father and the whole family moves to Egypt and they live happily ever after. There's a lot we could single out about this story of Joseph to commend his faith, his exemplary faith. But what we're going to look at is what does the author of Hebrews pull out about his life? What does the author of Hebrews in this chapter about people who have faith, what does, what does he say about Joseph's life? And it will, it will surprise you. Look at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 22. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. That's what you and I would pick out about Joseph's life, right? That's the thing we would commend for his faith. Remember, this, this audience is a Jewish audience. They would have known Joseph's story. It would be like me saying to you, well, you know George Washington, right? You say, yeah, yeah. I say, yeah, he was the guy who in 1798 was brought out of retirement by President John Adams to oversee the United States Army because there was a threat of a looming war with France. And Washington, you know, he didn't want to say no to his country, but he also knew his limitations with his age. And so he said, yes, but I'm going to have someone else run with all the details, and I'll only really assume the, the command if, uh, if a war happens. Well, it didn't. Washington died. Everything I just said was true. But you're like, well, why is that the thing that you pick out about Washington's life? There's a lot of other things you could say before that. Another example, maybe last summer, you watched the fantastic documentary on Michael Jordan called The Last Dance. 
you know, this was during COVID where we were all at home. And uh, so I remember my family, we would all gather around our respective TVs and we would text during the commercial breaks of this documentary. And if you watched it, you might remember that one particular, they had a number of guest appearances on there. You might remember one in particular that really took the internet by storm. They had a guy named Barack Obama on and he was identified as a former Chicago resident. And the internet's just like, well, that, that's crazy. Why, why is that the thing you identify President Obama with? Well, the director of this documentary explained why. It's because during the, the time of Michael Jordan in Chicago, that's where President Obama was, and that's what he was doing. That's, that's more so what gives him um, credibility to speak into the effect of Jordan the Bulls on the city of Chicago. It was all purposeful for a reason. Even though that might not be what you and I single out about his life, the first thing, it was for a reason. And that's even more so true of Hebrews 11. I'm going to let you in on a secret. One of the fundamental principles that I apply when I study the Bible, and I'm seeking to know how does this all fit together, it's this. Ready? The biblical authors are not stupid. Now, you, you might laugh, but I, I'm serious. That I, I do think through that as I come to the text. And, and, and these authors... Uh, writing these words brought about, inspired by the Spirit of God. There's a reason why it says what it says. And our job then is not to stand in authority over it to say, well, it should have said this or this, but it is to submit in humble reverence and seek by the Spirit's help to discern what is really going on here. So that's what we do as we come to Hebrews chapter 11. We come to the story of Joseph and we say, well, that might not have been the first thing we would have pulled out from his life, but it surely is for a purpose. And what is that? So I want to show you from Hebrews 11 what's actually going on. You back up to verse 1. Dan preached on this a few weeks ago. It says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. See, many aspects of Joseph's life see a joyous and joyful resolution. He's reunited with his family, reconciled, all these things. Um, it seems like everything wraps up nicely. But what did he not see? Well, he had not seen God's promises in giving them the land. So that's what the author of Hebrews commends him for. At the end of Joseph's life, he has faith, the assurance of things he has hoped for his entire life, and the conviction of things that he has not yet seen. You jump down to verse 6. It says, Without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So what is the reward for those who seek him? And what happens if we don't actually see that in our lifetime. We looked last week at the story of Noah. Noah built an ark, and it took him a long time to do it. Now, in that time, it could have been very easy for him to doubt and wonder, does God still care? Did God change his mind? But Noah kept putting one foot in front of the other, one nail at a time on the ark. And he eventually saw the rain come, and, 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 and God be true to what he had promised. The author of Hebrews then goes and talks about Abraham, gives a, a, an extended portion on Abraham, and we'll return there in this series. We see that Abraham is commended for uh, believing God's promises. First, Abraham goes out from his country. He goes to a land that he didn't know. And why, the, the author of Hebrews tells us, he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Abraham left his home because he was looking toward a greater home, a heavenly one. 
And then it commends Abraham for believing the covenant promises that God made to him. We read it in Genesis 12 and 15. And God promises Abraham, I'm going to give you a son in your old age. And from him will come so many descendants that they will be as innumerable as the stars. And I'm going to give you a great land, Abraham. Now, Abraham in his life saw the beginning of this fulfillment. He saw his child Isaac. But he didn't see it in full. So Abraham died by faith. This is what it says in verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. And he goes on to tell us they weren't just longing for another, another homeland here. If that were the case, they could have just turned around and headed back home. They were longing for a heavenly one. It says, as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And then it goes on and talks about Abraham sacrificing Isaac. And note, the reason that Abraham had faith to sacrifice Isaac is because he had faith that God would fulfill what he had promised, even if Abraham couldn't see how that works. And that leads us directly into uh, some, some verses on these patriarchs. Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. We read this, look at verse 20. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. And by faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Now there's a number of parallels between these patriarchs here. Each of them uh, begins with the now familiar refrain as we've been looking at Hebrews 11. By faith, so-and-so did something. But there's more parallels than even that. Because what's being mentioned about Isaac and Jacob and Joseph in these verses are some final words toward the end of their life. We might say some of their final wishes, their final statements, their final actions. We look in the book of Genesis, some of the final times they actually Take the focus of a story. What happens? Well, Isaac blesses Jacob and Esau. And Jacob then blesses Ephraim and Manasseh, Joseph's sons. Here we have two seemingly old blind men blessing the younger son rather than the older son because of a blazingly clear sight of faith that God would fulfill what he had promised. And then Joseph. Then Joseph is mentioned. Again, he's on his deathbed. These are the final words that we will read of him in the book of Genesis. In fact, we read this in Genesis chapter 50. The final verses of the book of Genesis says this. Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. And so Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. After 93 years in Egypt, Joseph dies, and he's longing for home. But it's not another country. It's the land that God has promised them. And we see that Joseph is desiring a, a, a better country, a heavenly one. But he's also believing that God will be faithful to his promises to give them the land. What we see in these verses in Hebrews 11 with Isaac, with Jacob, and with Joseph is what faith looks like in the face of death. 
These patriarchs all died, and they are commended here in Hebrews 11 for a faith in God's covenant faithfulness. See, I dare suppose that nothing tests and proves faith, like approaching the end of one's life, having not yet seen God's promises fulfilled. Noah waited all those years for the rain to come, and then it did. It's an incredible faith and in, in how many of us would continue on day after day when seemingly nothing is coming of it. But I wonder if it would be even harder to wait all those years and die before the rain shows up. Then how do you believe that God is still going to be faithful to what he has promised? That's the faith of Isaac, of Jacob, and of Joseph, as we're looking at this morning, here in Hebrews 11, that they have faith, even in the face of death, that God will continue to be faithful to what he has promised, and he will bring it about. Joseph has no doubt that God will bring about what he has promised. See, Abraham saw God's promises. He began to see the fulfillment of it with Isaac, but he died by faith, trusting that God would do what he had said. Isaac, similarly, did not see this, but he died by faith, trusting that God would fulfill his promises. Jacob did not see this, but he died by faith, trusting that God would fulfill his promises. And Joseph, like these others, did not see it. He began to see it in part, but he did not see it in full. But he did see it in a sense. He saw it from afar, and he embraced it with what Spurgeon calls the long arms of faith. You see something far off and you, you wrap your arms around it and embrace it and hold it dear. So Joseph, at the end of his life, brings his brothers around him. He says, at the end of his life, he made mention of the exodus of the Israelites. He gave directions concerning his bones. And what he's telling him is this, remember the exodus. Remember the exodus. Now, to remember something that has still not yet happened is a remarkable display of faith in God. Because you consider that his covenant promises will be brought to completion. That he will do what he has said. It's so certain that you treat it as if it's already happened. Saying, remember what God will do. And even more so, Joseph doesn't just say, oh, well, if this happens, and if you remember, bring my bones up. He says, no, no, no. When God brings you out of this place to the land he has promised, when that happens, be sure to take my bones with you. What fortuitous divine providence that Joseph was in the land that was most known for the preservation of bodies in Egypt. See, these men died by faith. When we're faced with death, you're looking back at your life and you see all these dreams that are left unfulfilled, all these longings that have not been realized, all these hopes and dreams that seem like they're dashed, all these promises that you've not seen answered. Or fulfilled. You may look and say, well, God, I really thought you would do this, but I guess I was wrong. Or, like Joseph, like these patriarchs, you may look and say, even if I, if I don't live to see the fulfillment of it, that makes these no less certain, because God will do what he has promised. Even now, as believers, we die longing for things that are yet unfulfilled. We have seen the fulfillment of so many promises, in fact, more than Joseph could even dream about. And yet we await our 
the return of Christ. We await the heavenly kingdom. We await the resurrection of our bodies. And so we die by faith, trusting completely that he will do what he has said and that our death does nothing to stop God's promises from being fulfilled. Joseph's story testifies to us. It, it, it shouts to us. It shows us a life lived in the face of adversity and hardship and injustice and a life lived as, as he approaches death of what it looks like to have faith in God. The final cry of a life of faith is a life and a death that proclaims that God will be faithful just as he has already been. And so Joseph pulls his friends and his family dear. He says, make no mistake, God will do exactly as he has said. And on that day, just as Joseph's body was dug up by Moses at the Exodus and taken to the promised land and buried there once God gave them into it, on that day, just like that, when we look forward to our future, we trust that there will be a day where our bodies will be raised and made new. And we will be in the heavenly kingdom with our great Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, forever and ever and ever. There is nothing in this life, nothing, that when you come to the end of your life and on your deathbed and you're looking back at your life and you're seeing all these dreams unfulfilled, all these longings that have not been realized, you're seeing all these things that you missed out on. There is nothing when you enter into eternity, into the presence of Jesus Christ, there is nothing that you will feel like you missed out on in this life. Not marriage, not children, not a job, not success, not any pleasure. There is nothing that as soon as you reach eternity, you will feel like you missed out on because there is the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord and because we, are, we await a better country, a heavenly one. And so as we approach that final enemy of death, we defiantly say, O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And I think of the, that classic story, Pilgrim's Progress. Christian and hopeful are approaching the final great difficulty. It's this river. There's no bridge over it. It's deep. And this river is death. And they ask their guide, is there any other way around this? It says that only two, Enoch and Elijah, have gone that way. Everyone must pass through this river. So Christian and Hopeful wade in, and Christian begins to sink. He's looking at his sin. He's seeing all this. And he's saying, there's no way I'm going to make it to that kingdom. There's no way I'm going to make it there. I'm going to be lost. And he cries out to Hopeful. He says, I sink in deep waters. The billows go over my head. All his waves go over me. But to this hopeful response to him, be of good cheer, my brother. I feel the bottom and it is good. Hopeful keeps his eyes on this glorious celestial city, the hope of being with their king and he helps Christian across and they make it through. And so in that same way, these people listed here in Hebrews 11, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, at the end of their lives, shout to us. They cry to us, be of good cheer, my brothers and sisters. I feel the bottom and it is good. Christian and hopeful make their way through the river. They come to the celestial city and we are told that by what tongue or pen can their glorious joy even be expressed? The only way we can face death like that is when we're looking toward a greater home, our true home, a heavenly one. And when we, like Joseph, trust in God's prom promises and that he will do exactly as he has said.
And really, this was the same way that Joseph lived. So if Joseph, in a sense, died by faith, Joseph also lived by faith, trusting in God's promises. When we look at his life and we see all those things that we already mentioned earlier and, and everything that happened to him, we come to realize very quickly that Joseph lived every step of the way trusting in the God who would be faithful and was working to accomplish his purposes. I, I, I'm not making that up. Look, Genesis 45. This is when Joseph and his brothers are, are, are reunited. Joseph reveals himself to his brothers and they are dismayed and afraid as you would be. They've wronged their brother. They, they, all of a sudden he reveals himself to him and says, oh yeah, by the way, I'm the second most powerful man in the most powerful nation on the earth. And these are the people that have just wronged him. They are afraid. And here's what Joseph says to them. I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. They say, uh-oh, like this is not going to go well for him, right? Here's what Joseph says. Now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. It's a stunning statement about the providence of God amidst all that Joseph has endured. Joseph claims it was God who sent him to Egypt, not his brothers. And, and we read the story, we're like, wait a second. No, it was his brothers. We know the story. His brothers are the ones that sold him. Joseph knew that above his brothers was the providential hand of God working all things for the good of his people. We don't always know, we're not always told, how God can be sovereign over sin, intending it for his good purposes, and yet never the author of evil. But we believe that it's true. Joseph connects all of this with the preservation of the remnant on earth. The thing that's been running all throughout Genesis is the preservation of the seed, the descendant of the woman, Eve. And we see that that will be preserved, will be carried about through what Joseph endured on Egypt. That this was for the preservation of the remnant to keep alive many survivors. In the Bible, right, when we, it never just so happens. It's never coincidental, and neither is it in your life. Behind all of this is the providential hand of a good and loving Father who is working all things for the good of His people. And this is what Joseph is committed for in Hebrews 11, that he trusts in that God. And he trusts that that God will, will do His purposes, will accomplish everything He sets out to do, and will be faithful to His promises to His people. Joseph believed that in his death. He believed it in his life. And I don't think there's a better summary of Joseph's life than the one that we find in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. It's probably the most well-known verse from the life of Joseph when he says this to his brothers. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Now, we mustn't back away from the force of that statement. Sometimes, maybe oftentimes, we imagine that what this means is that the brothers intend it for evil, but God just kind of maneuvers it and uses it for good, making the best out of a bad situation. Listen, you and I can do that. We can make the best out of a bad situation. No, 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 that's not what this verse is saying. It says, you meant it for evil. God meant it for good. Same root word. 
Now, when the same author in the same book, the same chapter, the same verse uses the same root word, we should probably understand meaning the same thing. So what this verse is saying, what Joseph is saying here, is that man's intentions were evil, but God's intentions were good. Man designed, purposed, intended, and carried out all of this for evil. But God designed, purposed, intended, and carried out all of this for good. God's providential purposes always supersede human actions. And in God's strange but wonderful providence, he designs even sinful actions to serve his beautiful plan without himself being complicit in any evil. Here's what John Piper says about this verse. What does this mean? It means that the brothers' intentions were not for sending for future deliverance. Their intention was selling for selfish gain, not sending for salvation. But God's intention in this sinful selling was very different. It was not sinful. It was saving. Their selling was driven by lust for 20 shekels of silver. God's sending was driven by love for his chosen people. That's what bolsters you and I in the midst of hardship. So bolstered Joseph in the midst of hardship. It's the very thing he's lauded for in Hebrews 11 is a trust that God is always at work and will continue to be at work. We can't always see how this plays out. We don't always know how it happens. We can't always see, how, God, how are you working here? How are you going to bring good out of this? How are, you, how are you meaning this for good? But we trust. And the theme of Genesis 50, 20, that statement from Joseph, echoes throughout the pages of Scripture. In fact, in Romans 8, another well-known verse, I wonder if Paul has on his mind echoes of this passage in Genesis when he writes this in Romans 8, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. All things for the good of his people and for his glory. Or as Spurgeon so beautifully said, he applies the same principle. He says, remember this, had any other condition been better for you than the one in which you now are, divine love would have put you there. And I dare say that if Joseph could believe that, after everything that he endured, all the hardship, all the injustice, all the tragedy, all the loneliness, all the questions and concerns, then so too can you and I. But how? What does it look like? I'm going to leave you with a few suggestions of what this looks like in our life. First, we know God's character and His promises. We know God's character and His promises. See, it is not lost on me that this kind of all-pervasive, purposeful sovereignty that we are talking about, that we see in the life of Joseph, could be frightening. But this is where we must learn to trust God's character. He is good. From every page of Scripture, we come more and more to learn about this God we love. We come to trust Him. Put yourselves in Joseph's shoes, or maybe put yourselves in his colorful robe. Everything that's happened in your life, everything that's happened to him, who would you most want to have the ultimate decisive influence in your situation? Would you want it to be your sinful brothers? 
or would you want it to be your good and loving God? We come to trust God's character. We come to trust his purposes, but we can't trust him, at least not in the sense that this faith, the faith that Hebrews 11 calls us to, demands. We don't know him. The more you come to know his character, the more you'll come to trust his promises. And similarly, you cannot live in this way of true faith, like we're talking about in this series, if you are in love with this world. And that's the second thing. Embrace your homesickness. Embrace your homesickness. We don't really like the feeling of being homesick. I can't imagine that Joseph liked the feeling of being away from his country. Can't imagine Abraham liked the feeling of being away from his country. Um, we don't really like feeling homesick, but the Bible tells us that we are strangers and aliens in this world. We're longing for a better kingdom, a heavenly one. Reality is too many Christians seem perfectly at home with the world. And if that's the case, then it's fair to wonder if this world really is our home. Because Christians, we know that we don't belong here. We know that we are strangers and aliens. We know that we are immigrants and refugees here in this country. We embrace it and we let it drive us to God because we look forward to a greater country that is a heavenly one where we will be with God. So third, we seek justice and we love mercy. Because while we are here, we live by faith in God. You might know those words from Micah 6, 8. It says, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? See, when we are heaven-minded, we are of earthly good. Joseph was the victim of great injustice, grievous, horrible injustice. And he rightly called it for what it is. You meant evil against me. We should grieve when we see the story of Joseph and we see the injustice perpetrated against him and we see the injustice against people today. We should grieve. And if the Lord gives us a voice or an ability to, to actually do something about it, we should do as this verse says, do justice and love kindness and mercy. It's what Joseph demonstrates in his life. And actually, it's what was demonstrated to Joseph. Some of you might know the story of Jacob and Esau. Well, they were going to reunite. Genesis 33 tells us the story of when they reunited together, and Jacob is just so fearful. He's like, how is Esau going to react? So he sends wave after wave trying to appease his brother after having wronged him so many, so many years before. Here's what we read in Genesis 33 the last wave that Jacob sends to try to appease Esau before meeting him. And last, guess who's there? Joseph and Rachel drew near and they bowed down. And then Esau and Jacob meet. They're reunited and Esau shows his brother, uh, they, they, they reconcile, they, 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 they embrace and they, um, there, there's forgiveness there. And Joseph witnessed that as a child. And many, many years later, he would have the opportunity to show that same love, forgiveness, toward brothers who had wronged him, and he does. Never underestimate the, the impact that demonstrating forgiveness and love and mercy can have on other people around you. Parents, never underestimate the impact that can have on your children who are, who are, who are observing and watching and picking this up. And never underestimate the impact this can have on other people who are looking around. It seems that that happened in Joseph's life, that he as a kid saw this happen and many years later was able to do it himself. We do justice, we love kindness and mercy, and we model that to others. And listen, people around you will notice when you live a life full of 
forgiveness and of justice. For so many today, it's one or the other. When you do both, you don't compromise on justice, but you also love and forgive. People will notice that. So fourth, we remember and we remind. Remember and remind. We remember God's faithfulness, both in the past and in the future. Remember, dear Christian, how God has been faithful to you. Remember where he has shown himself to be glorious and good. Remember the stories from the Bible, page after page after page, story after story after story of God's faithfulness. Remember God's promises of how he'll be faithful in the future. And as we remember these things, we turn it around and we remind other people. We call one another, remember, remember what God has done. Remember what God will do. Even now, there are so many people from our church family in the midst of hardship and and trials and struggles in life are an encouragement to me as they walk by faith, remembering God's goodness, and remembering what he has promised. We remember and we remind. Like Joseph at the end of his life, he brings together his brothers and he implores them, remember what God will do. So too, when we gather together as a church, we not only remember, but we remind one another, saying God has been faithful in the past, God is faithful today, and God will be faithful in the future. J.I. Packer wrote that the New Testament presents faith in Christ as restoring to us the hope of an unimaginably glorious future. There will be an effectual elimination of evil. There will be an endless extrapolation of good. There will be an ecstatic extension of fellowship with the glorified Christ and with glorified Christians. And there will be an eternal enjoyment of God's glory and His beauty in ways that we cannot at present begin to conceive. Dear friends, there is a glorious future for us. And God will do exactly as He has promised. And the reason that you and I can have confidence in that It's because of the cross of Jesus Christ. It's because that we have seen the fulfillment of so many promises that Joseph could hardly even imagine. We have seen a greater exodus than the one that was led out of slavery in Egypt Egypt by Moses, but one led by Jesus Christ out of slavery to sin. We have seen this. See, like Joseph, Jesus was specially beloved of his father. Like Joseph, Jesus would reign over his brothers. Like Joseph, Jesus was sent by his father to his brothers, but was hated and betrayed by those who were close to him. Like Joseph, Jesus was stripped of his robe. He was sold for silver. He was delivered into the hands of foreigners. Like Joseph, Jesus was falsely accused of a sin he did not commit. And like Joseph, Jesus was the one through whom God's people were delivered from death and given life. Because that verse we read from Genesis 50 and from Romans 8 earlier, finds echoes in a sermon at Pentecost. Peter, preaching in Acts 2, 23, says this, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. See what he's doing there? He says, you crucified and killed Jesus. You meant it for evil. But it was according to God's definite plan, foreknowledge, purposes. God meant it for good. It's never been more true than at the cross of Jesus Christ. Because there's only one man who was truly innocent and spotless. One man who committed no sin. 
yet who is also the subject of the most grievous and horrific injustice that has ever been per perpetrated, the one who was betrayed by one who was closest to him, the one who was falsely accused, who was stripped of his robe, who was delivered over to the Gentiles. So as Jesus hung on the cross, suffering and bleeding and dying, the Son of God present with his people, he was killed by the hands of lawless men, yet it was all according to the divine purpose of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, to bring it about that many people would be saved. Think about a kid in, growing up in Egypt, an Israelite kid. After Joseph passed away, they've heard the story of Joseph, and, and the son asks his mom, Mommy, why did that happen to Joseph? His mother very tenderly, without missing a beat, scoops her child into her lap. She very sweetly looks him in the eye and says, my dear son, that happened so that you would be kept alive today. And maybe you're listening and you're wondering, why did all of that happen to Jesus? Why did all those things, why did all that injustice, why, why did he have to die on a cross? And I say to you, my dear friend, that happened so that you might be kept alive today. Because there is a coming death that is far worse than the famines of Egypt could touch. But in Christ, there's forgiveness and there's life that we would be spared from death and await this glorious city, this eternal inheritance where we will be with our God forever. And Jesus says, if you believe in him, you'll be saved. Joseph lived a life of faith, trusting in God's promises. And when came time, Joseph died by faith, trusting in God's promises. As we traverse this, this life and we approach even that final enemy, that river of death, we nonetheless persevere on through because like hopeful, we can say, I feel the bottom and it is good because we rest in Christ, one who has traversed this river before us, who has passed from death to life and now reigns and rules and lives today in this glorious city where he has prepared a place for us prepared for us a city. He is not ashamed to be called our God. So we desire a better country, a heavenly one. This is the faith of Joseph. It's the faith of true believers. And so I conclude with these words by Richard Baxter, where he writes, Lord, it belongs not to my care, whether I die or live. To love and serve thee is my share, and this thy grace must give. If life be long, I will be glad that I may long obey. If short, yet why should I be sad to welcome endless day? Christ leads me through no darker rooms than he went through before. He that into God's kingdom comes must enter by that door. Come, Lord, when grace hath made me meet thy blessed face to see. For if thy work on earth be sweet, what will thy glory be? Then I shall end my sad complaints and weary sinful days and join with the triumphant saints that sing my Savior's praise. My knowledge of that life is small. The eye of faith is dim. But tis enough that Christ knows all, and I shall be with him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ, <laughs> through whom we are saved. Because you did not spare your son, but gave him up for us all, that we might... Um, that we, we might be saved, that a remnant might be preserved, that if we come to him, we would believe. And, and so, Father, we thank you for the, the, the life of Joseph, the faith of Joseph. It's, it's all a gift. You've gifted him the faith, but the example that Joseph lives for us, how he lives by faith, trusting in your promises. 
And he died by faith, trusting that you would do exactly as you would say. Father, may we have that same kind of faith. May we live by faith, trusting in you, trusting that you will do what you have said. And if you, if the time comes for us to die before you return, may we die by faith, trusting that you will do exactly as you said, because we await this glorious, better country. You are not ashamed to be called our God, for you have prepared for us a city. And in this city, this glorious home, we will be at home with Christ, our Lord and Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.